for a lot of people like dogs. So I, I use a dog metaphor, but so there are all these different dogs and we love them. We love, um, like terriers because they chase animals and we love poodles because they're so pretty and prissy. And then we love great Danes because they're gigantic, but they're so gentle. But imagine if we said in the dog world, everybody had to look like a poodle. So what would that mean for the great Dane? Would we starve our great Dane? So it would get small. Would we give it hair growth pills? So it got curly hair. No, because that's ridiculous. But we accept all dog bodies as they are, right? But we don't accept all people bodies as they are. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast. So this week you're going to hear the conversation I had with Beth Rosen. Beth is a registered dietitian and she promotes a non-diet approach to wellness that I very much appreciate. So things that we talk about in this podcast, we talk about health at every size, of the origins of it and what it means. We talk about the diet industry and the business model that, and how that business model exploits the way that we think about our own bodies. We talk about eating disorders and um, health issues around eating disorders such as dental issues um, that aren't often recognized by dentists and other problems um, such as loss of periods that aren't often recognized by doctors. We talk about overshoot in eating disorder recovery, uh, why it can be a really great thing for the body and how the body then goes on to balance itself out and come to its your body's optimal weight for your size. We talk about false truths and the diet industry and how they affect um, our eating decisions and the dangers of diet rules. We also talk about getting rid of the thin ideal and work that can be done by all of us to help that happen. Here's the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. The first thing that I asked Beth was if she could tell us a little bit about health at every size. Okay, so very simply, health at every size means that a practitioner would take care of your health from a weight neutral standpoint, which means that it's not a matter of what size you are, what you weigh, what your body looks like per se, but really what's going on on the inside. I like to call that the metabolic health of a person. So while a person can be what some would call overweight or obese, that's a clinical term. Um, I like to use the words um, in a larger body. A lot of people um, have embraced the word fat. So in a fat body, um, may be living in a fat body and be healthy. And conversely, someone who's living in a thin body may not be healthy, but when you walk into a practitioner's office, and I'm saying practitioner because um, it's not just doctors who treat bodies, but dietitians and therapists, there are other people um, who treat bodies. So um, anyone who treats a body has to, if they're coming from a health at every size standpoint, they're treating a body equal, everybody equally. So everybody deserves the right to be treated for their metabolic health, their insides, um, because a thin person can be unhealthy while a fat person could be healthy. And you wouldn't know it if you were just judging by the size of the body. So that's, that's the basics of health at every size. It's to treat the metabolic health of a person, regardless of what they look like, and give everybody equal access to health care. Yeah, and it's it's the kind of thing that when you talk about it like that, it just seems like it's it's a complete no-brainer. And of course, any person that goes into a practitioner's office should be treated 
regardless of their body size. Each should be treated equally. But I've been on the spectrum of being far in a very unhealthy thin body and had doctors say to me, well, you know, you look fine. And I've known I wasn't fine. Um, and I also, right. I also know that it works, I think, even more atrociously the other way. When, when somebody who has fat is, is in a fat body goes in to a practitioner and the practitioner can't really get over their prejudice of that this body can't be healthy because this body's fat. Right. So you can have two things going on. A, a practitioner could look at a body and say, well, you look fine, where it could be somebody who's in the throes of an eating disorder, but doesn't meet the, um, I guess, the society standards of what anorexic looks like. Right. So you can have somebody who's starving themselves to death, but isn't in a smallish body yet. They're, you know, riding the line or has disordered eating and not really taking care of their metabolic health because of that. And they're treated like, oh, you're fine because you meet society's thin ideal. Right. And then you have the other side where you have somebody come in who's saying, I have a pain here or I have a growth here or something hurts me. And the answer is always, well, then lose weight and exercise because their body's bigger. When really, the question a doctor should be asking themselves or a practitioner should be asking themselves, if this person was a BMI of 22, would I treat them this, you know, how would I treat them? Yeah. Right? So that, and, and not that I place any um, weight, for lack of a better word, but any weight on BMI, because I don't use it in my practice, I don't think it's a good measuring tool of anything. It's it's really just a measurement of height versus weight, and that doesn't tell you about the makeup of the body or what's going on in the body. Um, but practitioners still do use it um, as a way to measure whether or not somebody's considered healthy or not. And so if you look at somebody and they're within what you consider normal BMI, then you treat, oh, well, if they're not feeling well, let's look for diabetes, let's look for high blood pressure. But if somebody comes at a BMI of, of 35 or 40, they immediately say, well, whatever's wrong with you is because your body's bigger. And that's not necessarily the case. And most times it's not the case. You know, you can be you could have great blood pressure and a great um, blood sugar and great cholesterol counts in a larger body and then come in and want to be treated because you have a pain in your armpit and they say, well, that's because you're heavy, go lose weight. And two things can happen. One could be that they miss a diagnosis, say, God forbid, breast cancer or something with a pain because they just attribute it to carrying around extra weight. And the other thing that can be triggered is a risk of an eating disorder because if doctors continually tell people to lose weight and exercise without giving them a safe way to do it, and in my experience, there is no safe way to lose weight um, because it doesn't serve our bodies. So when you send somebody out into the world to lose weight and exercise without a safe way of doing so, you risk putting them at risk for an eating disorder. So there's risk of the eating disorder, but just I think the, the risk of missing a diagnosis, I mean, it astounds me that any doctor would feel sort of okay with taking that risk, would allow their prejudice about a, a fat body to allow them to take that sort of risk with someone. It's fascinating. Yeah, I think so too. And I think, you know, in, in all of the time a doctor spends in school and in their learning years, I doubt they're spending much time talking about health at every size. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not common cultural 
um, it's not the common cultural way of treating patients. You know, typically they think there's this obesity epidemic and we need to fix it, uh, where I think the obesity epidemic isn't actually a real thing. There's plenty of studies out there that show that you can reduce your um, blood glucose levels, you can reduce your cholesterol levels, and still stay at the same weight. You know, you can correct your hypertension and still stay at the same weight. And you can do that with dietary change and exercise. But nowhere in there within the dietary change and exercise do you need to reduce your intake, your calories, in order to get there. You can do it by choosing different foods that serve your health better rather than restricting your eating. I think you're right. I just think that a lot of doctors don't really know these things. Um... From my experience, one thing that I know a lot of doctors don't know is that when a person is underweight, a woman is underweight, she can lose her periods because she's underweight. And I've been to my doctor when I was very underweight because I wasn't having periods. And they put me through all of these tests and all of these trials and all of these different hormone um, tests. And really the answer was I was underweight and no one ever said that to me. Right. And where you astounds me. Right. And if you were underweight because you weren't eating, Mm -hmm. that's different from being underweight because genetically you don't keep weight on. Yeah. No, there's a difference. Yeah. I was underweight because I wasn't eating and no one, no one even asked the, asked the question. Um, Right. And I, you know, I know of other people as well. And in this country, I was in England at that time, but uh, over here, I know people that have spent thousands of dollars on sort of hormone testing and all the different things when really the answer was because they weren't eating. Um, but you know, doctors were, would rather put them through tests and trials than, than look for that as the problem. Right. And because they feel that they have a client who is at the BMI that, that this arbitrary chart says they should be at doesn't necessarily mean that's where your body should be. And if your body is below where it should be, it's going to send you signals. First, it's going to send you a signal that it's not going to give you a period anymore, right? Because you don't have the fat stores to hold estrogen. So where's it going to go? You lose your period. Then your nails get brittle, your hair gets brittle, your hair might fall out, your teeth may discolor. Like there's so many things that go on for people um, that are telltale signs of starvation, yet doctors aren't picking up on it because they're focused so much on the BMI. Okay, so... Just be, just because you said that, it reminded me of something that I actually had on my list to ask you about um, because it came up for, for somebody I was talking to yesterday. So they um, went to the dentist. This person is in active recovery from anorexia. She's still underweight, um, but she, she is on a plan and she is trying very hard with recovery. Uh, it's an adult and um, she went to her dentist yesterday and I mean, I know because I've got a mouthful of fillings that um, one of the side effects of anorexia can be very poor dental health. Um, her dentist didn't know this and she had to have a filling and her dentist told her that she needs to cut down on eating things like sugar. Um, <laughs> and so now, you know, I'm, I'm talking to this woman and of course her eating disorder is like, yay, restriction, let's go with that. But she kind of knows that, okay, maybe I should ask someone who knows about eating disorders if this is the case, if I should cut down on sugar, or if actually for me, that's not necessarily the healthiest thing for me to do right now. Um, 
so you know that was the that was the question I was asked. My answer, as always, was just no. It's you, you know your your teeth. The problem with your teeth is the malnutrition and the starvation, and so something that happens to a lot of us with anorexia and you absolutely need to keep eating all the things um but i wonder what what your sort of advice would be on the, in that situation well i totally agree with with your assessment of it uh and it's interesting that we don't always add dentists into the practitioner um arena because they don't deal with bodies. They're just dealing with mouths. But as you said, when you have anorexia and bulimia, um, you can do some major damage to your teeth. Uh, and, uh, those, those practitioners need to be made aware as well. Um, just blanket statements saying don't eat sugary, sticky foods will not help people support their dental health, right? Because there are other things that go into dental health. What about calcium? What about eating foods with iodine in them? What about eating things with, um, with, um, now the word escapes me, fluoride in it, you know, so eating a variety of foods will get you these minerals that support your teeth. And those questions weren't asked, I assume. Is she eating foods that support her teeth rather than what can she take out of her, what she take out of her diet to support her teeth? Yeah. And I just think even the awareness of if this person maybe, cause she did actually ask, could this be something to do with um, I have anorexia and the dentist sort of said, well, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. But just that awareness that if someone is telling you they have an eating disorder, you do not tell them to restrict any type of food. Like that should, I feel that awareness should be out there. It's different from totally dealing agree. with the general population. I totally agree with you on that. I think if anyone says to you that they have an eating disorder and you're a dentist and you don't know, you don't talk about food, period. Because you don't know what can trigger somebody. I think that's common sense. But again, I don't know who this dentist is and where they're getting their information from. Yeah, but it certainly would serve them to go look up health at every size and, uh, and become educated a little bit in that yeah. um, realm. Um, so can you, can, do you know how the, the health at every size movement started? I'm just, I actually don't know and I'm interested. There's a whole thing. Okay, so there's a website called Association for Size, Diversity, and Health. And on there is the history of how Health at Every Size came to be and how they created their principles and um, their approach. But I think how Health at Every Size became really popular was through a book written by Dr. Linda Bacon, I know her name is very fitting, called Health at Every Size. And while she didn't create Health at Every Size, the Health at Every Size movement, um, but she did write the book, I think she's considered the, the poster woman for the movement. Uh, and basically, her book, Health at Every Size, she has two books, um, but the first one, Health at Every Size, really explains the science behind why diets don't work, about the politics that go on around obesity research. Um, she talks a lot about how, uh, how diets don't work, how the research that shows that diets don't work doesn't really get to the mainstream because it doesn't serve the $60 billion diet industry. Yes. Uh, and that'll Right. And that a lot of what's put out there for us to see and read and think about is funded by the food companies. So recently, just this summer, 
there was an expose on how the sugar industry hid some research that said that uh, sugar was the cause of um, high blood cholesterol and I'm, I'm, I have air quotes here, but obesity. Mm-hmm. And they hit it and somehow was able to direct, you know, point the finger at fat. So this was back in the 80s, late 80s maybe. And that's when that whole fat-free movement went into place. So when everybody dropped off a of fat but replaced it with sugar, I don't know if you remember Snackwell's cookies. They were the big rage where you could eat all these puffy air cookies because they didn't have any fat in them, but they were loaded with sugar. But sugar wasn't the enemy at the time. It was yeah. fat. And now we've sort of gotten off of fat as the enemy because now avocados and coconut oil are everywhere. And sugar's now the enemy. And so this is the game that the diet industry plays because they have to keep it real and new for us to sort of grasp at straws to figure out how we're going to meet this ideal that they've set for us so that they can still have a business. And so Health at Every Size, the book basically um, opens your eyes to how they're doing this and then in the second half of the book explains how to live in a way that's health at every size. And health at every size is something that um, I, I, um, I find myself referring to it a lot. I, I, we have a, a Slack sort of forum. It's like a peer support group for adults in active recovery from anorexia. And we have a health at every size channel. And it comes up a lot in, in anorexia recovery because people experience overshoots, which is a natural and um, actually optimal part of recovering from a restrictive eating disorder I think but mm-hmm. it freaks it freaks them out and it freaks the eating disorder out especially um and right. so health at every size I, th- I think can be fabulous for somebody that's experiencing that and learn and teaching them that everything that they possibly have been taught about what a body should look like to be healthy and how a body should be to be healthy isn't necessarily true and that they should question that and question even whether overshoot is a bad thing and they, you know, teach them to be happy to be there. Mm-hmm. When you talk about overshoot, do you mean overshoot in their ideal weight or yes. overshoot in their eating, overshoot, in their weight? Um, overshoot, so most people overshoot their pre-eating disorder weight by about 10% or so. Right. So how, how I like to explain this to people, um, and I've heard a, a few other health at every size practitioners explain it this way, but it just works well, is if you consider the chronic cycle of dieting or even an eating disorder as on a pendulum, and you took the pendulum and hung it in the middle and pulled it to one side, and that one side being restriction. So you have in there dieting, food rules, eating disorders, um, the shoulds, the shouldn'ts, the, the bad foods, the, all those external rules in there, and you pull that end of the pendulum all the way to there and then let it go, it would swing to the other side. And on the other side, you have binge eating, overeating, mindless eating, not following any rules, but also not listening to your body. Just go into town because you're finally free of rules. And what happens is 
when you're a chronic dieter, that pendulum swings for a little while, right? When you let a pendulum go, it doesn't just stop, it swings. So it swings for a little while. And when it starts to slow down, it gets to that middle ground where it just swings lightly at the bottom. And I like to call that place um, competent eating or intuitive eating, where your weight may fluctuate within there a little bit, but it comes from a place of things that happen in your life. So where you might get sick and you're not restricting on purpose, but you don't have an appetite when you're sick. So you may not eat that much, but then when you're done being sick and you're healthy and maybe you're at a holiday or whatever, and you, you tend to eat a little more. So sometimes we go a little bit, a little more eating, but for the most part, you're sort of just moving ever so slightly in the middle. And that's what I like to call competent eating because that's life. Sometimes we eat more, sometimes we eat less, sometimes we eat when we're sad, but sometimes we can realize that and face our issues and try to resolve them and use food less often to cope and more often to fuel. But if sometimes we use it for coping, that's okay too. So that's like normalized eating right in that middle. So if someone's going through an eating disorder and they're swinging from the eating disorder and their weight goes to the other side or their eating goes to the other side, they should have some faith because eventually if they're doing the work, that pendulum will swing and slow and end up in that middle ground. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that is a great message. Just got to have faith. You got to trust the body. Um, yeah, you really do. You have to listen for those cues. And for somebody who has been avoiding internal cues for so long because they don't trust their bodies, whether it's an eating disorder voice that tells them don't trust that voice, listen to the, the food rules, or if it's a diet voice that's telling them, you know, don't trust this, or if it's from their family of origin where they've told, been told to clear their plate, or you can't eat after eight o'clock or whatever external rules have been put in there. When you start to quiet those voices, those external, that external voice that you've internalized as your internal food police or your internal mean girl, I like to call her, and start to strengthen that other voice of what your body really needs and what works best to fuel it. Then when you do get to that bottom point in the pendulum and your eating normalizes, you'll feel safe because you'll know you're taking care of your body the way your body needs to be taken care of, not how d the diet industry or the eating disorder voice says you should. Yeah, and that's actually um, what one of the larger messages. I mean, the book I wrote, Love Fat, is about recovering from anorexia, but one of the larger messages that I, I had to relearn how to listen to my body because I'd had so many years of listening to science and listening to other people and listening to the media that I didn't actually really know how to listen to my body and know what was right for my body. Um, and, you know, for me, one of one of the most healing things in my journey was actually when I discovered that all of the science around why fat is bad was not right. It wasn't true. And it, it had governed the way that we had all thought about diet for decades. Um, hence the name of the book, Love Fat. <laughs> but, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's it was it was just that sort of all of this external noise that and then when I came out of that, I was like, I don't even know what my body thinks. I have no idea. I don't even know how to just listen to my body and what it needs to eat and what size it needs to be. Yes, and you feel tricked because mm -hmm. it didn't work or it wasn't true. So what, what I do with my clients, I'd say first step, what I do with my clients always is teach them how to journal. And I think writing down what you're eating, not in necessarily in portion sizes, but what you're choosing, why you're choosing it, um, 
where you are in, in the hunger satiety continuum. Are you eating when you're hungry? Are you eating because you're triggered from something? Writing those triggers down. Where you're eating? Are you eating at a table and really um, showing yourself some care and some love by enjoying your food? Are you eating it standing by the sink? Are you eating it in the out of the fridge at 2 a.m.? How, how are you eating? And And starting to look at your process and how you eat. And then from there, it's easy to see habits. And from those habits, you can say, okay, so, but why, why are those habits formed? And a lot of the times it comes from false truths, right? So from those diet rules or from that false science or from something somebody said, and you decided that that was something you wanted to take on. And from there, you can use what's called neuroplasticity, which is the idea that you can change the neural pathways in your brain and create new habits. So from there, you can make the conscious decision to say, you know what, this doesn't serve me, and I'm going to try it this way for a little while. And once you try something and do it for a little while, believe it or not, your brain decides, okay, that's my new autopilot, and it shifts away from following the diet rules and the restriction and whatever else was in your path and creates a new path of, well, what does my body say? What do I need today? What, are, what, what, what will serve my health? And those questions arise. And it, it all stems from journaling so that you can look back onto your pattern. So I would say that's a great tool for everyone to really implement for themselves. And, um, what would you say of the if if you had to pick one sort of the majority of, of your clients? What what would you say um, they come to you for? I would say the majority of my clients are struggling with the vicious cycle of dieting. They're caught up in the food rules, um, the body image of trying to meet the thin ideal. Um, a lot of them are at a point where they've been dieting for anywhere from 10 to 40 years and it's just not working and they're finally getting to the point of this is hopeless it's not going to work I'm always going to be miserable and they want to change they want something different they don't know what that is most of them have never heard of health at every size have never heard of intuitive eating um, but they know they don't want to be struggling anymore with um, feeling restricted, having that monkey on their back where they wake up in the morning and they say, today I'm going to be good. And by the time it's bedtime, they say, tomorrow I'm going to be good because I broke the rules by three o'clock. So a lot of them come to me with the sense of hopelessness, um, looking to become what I call fearless eaters, where they have a healthy relationship with food um, and learn to develop some body respect and take care of their bodies so that they can live a long, healthy life. Um, we also look at wh what their goals are. Is their goal still set at being the thin ideal or where, where do they want to be in their lives where they think they will be happiest? And does that mean that they need a certain body to get there? So those are the kinds of people I see. And where do you think that we, we are in terms of getting rid of the thin ideal I mean it might seem like an impossible question but. it's you know it's hard to say for me because I surround myself with body positive people um, whether it's in real life or virtually so the podcasts I listen to are not about diet they're not about health claims they're not about quick fixes I listen to people who um, are doing health at every size work or doing intuitive eating work, people like you who are spreading a message that, 
eating disorders don't serve you. Um, and, you know, the hope that you can come out on the other side and live a healthy, happy life. Uh, I think that's important. So while I'm sure that it's still all out there, I don't know the last time I looked at one of those magazines with the people in it or watched an, a diet ad for diet pills. Um, so it's hard to say what's still going on out there. It, I know it is because I can still hear people around me talk about their bodies or um, what they're going to do to fit into something or just being self-disparaging. So I know it's still around. Maybe I'm naive to think that if I surround myself enough with positive people, that that's what life is really like. But I, I that's my hope. But I think that's also, um, I think that's a, a, a good message for for people that are struggling with with these sorts of things. Is just sort of stop listening to the other sides, so, you know, and and that can take a lot of self discipline actually to not be dragged into the thin ideal conversations, not be dragged into diet conversations, not be dragged into the sort of looping thoughts of I should be doing that, I should be doing this. And that, that in a way does take self-discipline, but only for a short while until you're out of the habit of being in those places. Exactly. That's the neuroplasticity kicking in so you can change the thought process. But I think also um, if you do a cleanse, and I mean cleanse in only the sense of your social media, of what you see, of the people you surround yourself with, and remove those negative body talk conversations and remove those images of what the thin idea looks like and start to follow on social media accounts where there are bodies of all shapes and sizes and start to listen to podcasts and radio programs and television programs that don't focus on the thin ideal and read magazines that have nothing to do with nutrition, health or fashion or beauty. Um, you're more likely to find that positivity within you when you feel you have the support. For most people, it's going to be virtually because we are not in mass around the world, but on, on uh, social media, there's a building, there's a building community for yeah. sure. And absolutely. And also if, if we stop feeding the thin ideal by buying those magazines and reading those sites and listening to that content, then it will go away in time. Oh, right. And, and to through. Right. And to add to that, if we become activists against it, so if you see something, speak out against it. So for instance, uh, in America, there's a store called Target and there was a shirt that said, um, eat, binge, sleep, repeat. Now, what that shirt really was about was about binge watching television because that seems to be something that people do here as part of our culture. You know, a, a TV series will come out and you can download it on the internet and watch the whole season, 10 shows in a row if you want to. And that's where the binge comes from. But when you see it hanging on a shelf and it said, I don't even think it said eat, I think it just said binge, sleep, repeat. I found it so offensive because to me, binge didn't mean TV, it meant eating. Mm -hmm. And so instead of me being feeling shamed for it or thinking it was going to hurt other people and how, you know, and how should the shirt still be on a shelf, I wrote a letter to to target then I blasted it all over the internet <laughs> and other people shared it so that got out the word that this is not okay to talk about binging as if it's just part of our culture same thing with like I I eat donuts 
I run because I like donuts. No, you can like donuts and you can like running. You don't have to run to eat donuts. You can eat donuts because you like them. It has nothing to do with how you burn off the calories afterwards to punish yourself afterwards or reward yourself with the donut after you exercise. The two have nothing to do with each other. Movement or exercise is to better your body. There's so many benefits to it between making you feel good, helping your lungs stay strong, strengthening your bones, lowering your your blood pressure, uh, managing your blood sugars, but nowhere in there does it actually help you lose weight. Yeah. And that's, that's, a, that's a no way kind of concept to people, but it's true. So exercise because you like it, exercise because it's good for you, but not because it gives you the right to eat more, because it doesn't. It certainly doesn't. Um, right. And only, and I, I'll put an asterisk next to that, only reason why you eat more if you're exercising is because you're more hungry. And that is only if your body's telling you that, not because somebody said you will be more hungry, because some people aren't more hungry when they exercise. Yeah. Well, Beth, I would, um, can you let people know how, the, how they can find out more about you? Sure. Uh, I'm on a bunch of different social media. You can find me specifically at my website, which is called goodnessgraciousliving.com. There's a tab there that has a bunch of diet-free living blog posts if you want to read more about my theory on all of this. Um, I'm also on Facebook. I have a group there called the Diet-Free Living Community with Beth Rosen. And uh, it's a closed group, but if you... um, If you ask to join, I will sign you right up. And then I'm also on Instagram at Goodness Gracious Living, and I'm on Twitter at GG Living. Fabulous. I'm going to link to all of those in the show notes as well so that people can find you within the click of a button. Um, Great. Thank you. I really appreciate you you coming on today. We covered lots of things, got great information. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. So I'm just going to lob in here a bit of a bonus bit from um, something Beth and I were talking about after the podcast. It's a little bit more on the health at every size topic and um, helping people to understand what body acceptance really is. But I I love the um, way that she describes this. So here's Beth again. Because I think there, it is scary to think of health at every size or intuitive eating as my body's just going to be what it's going to be regardless of what the thin ideal is. And there's, there's two ways I talk about that with people. One is um, for a lot of people like dogs. So I, I use a dog metaphor. But So there are all these different dogs and we love them. We love um, like terriers because they chase animals and we love poodles because they're so pretty and prissy and then we love great danes because they're gigantic but they're so gentle but imagine if we said in the dog world everybody had to look like a poodle so what would that mean for the great dane would we starve our great dane so it would get small would we give it hair growth pills so it got curly hair no because that's ridiculous but we accept all dog bodies as they are, right? But we don't accept all people bodies as they are. And that's the ridiculousness of life because we were created by whomever you think your creator is as different, right? We're all supposed to be beautiful in every shape and size. We love dogs in every shape and size. We love flowers in every shape and size. But people, we give a hard time for being different shapes and sizes, right? So that's that's one metaphor to sort of like get that crazy out of your head that um, – that we should be one size. And then the other part of it is 
there is a, something called a set point theory where your body is meant to be in homeostasis at a certain weight. So your body really wants to maintain a weight someplace on a scale. It might be between five and 10 pounds, depending on your body size. If you live in a larger body, it might be 10 to 30 pounds. If you live in a smaller body, it might be two to three pounds. Um, and so when you are at your natural weight, um, you'll fluctuate within those pounds if you're a competent eater. But for the most part, people who are in a certain size body will not be able to eat themselves up to six, 700 pounds. That, their bodies won't let them go there. There are some people genetically that are built that way to be that size. Or when they overeat past their set point, that's where they go. But for the majority of people, they're not going up that high. And so I think taking that fear out of, oh, but I thought I was X amount of pounds and a certain size and I don't want to get out of this size range or I'm afraid I'm going not, you know, they're going to have to bury me in a piano case. That's just not the case for so many people. Huge thanks to Beth for talking to me today. I think we covered some very important topics there. One thing that I think that um, we could all take away from today is to actually think, how am I contributing to the thin ideal in the way that I speak and the things that I do and maybe the, the items that I buy, the programs that I watch or listen to, or how am I advocating for health at every size by refusing to be part of that industry i think that's an interesting question um i'm certainly going to think about that even more um and i hope you do too and even maybe notice it in other people and, and call them out on it um so yeah that was this week's podcast i do hope that you look beth up online i have links to everything about her in the show notes to this episode cheers and until next time cheerio